We're back to Mark, everybody. It's been a, been a spell. But it's time for us to go back to Mark. Mark chapter 7 is where we left off. So it's Mark chapter 7 where we pick it up again. And the passage we're in is Mark 7, verse 31 to 37, the end of the chapter. Mark 7, 31 to 37. And in this passage, we find a most unusual healing, a most unusual healing, and a pronouncement that closes off the passage about the goodness of Christ. And so uh, I was eager to dive into this passage this week and and consider it, and, and I hope that the Lord will use it, not just to get us back into Mark, but use it in each one of your lives to give you a glimpse of Christ in his, in his glory. So that, that's what I'm asking God to do through his word today. Let me begin by reading it. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the very word of the living God. Mark's account of this healing is unique to Mark. Matthew kind of lumps it together with other healings that occur, just mentioning the healing of several miracles together, but this is the only place in the Bible you hear this story. It's not completely unusual because there are other healings where Jesus employs touch. Almost all his healings involve physical touch. And there are three times where his method of healing involves saliva, which to us is, is quite unusual. But just speaking of what's in the Bible, this is a special passage because this particular man who is unable to hear and speaks with great difficulty, some sort of speech impediment, is focused in on in Mark. And Mark has this man in mind intentionally. He has a special focus on the details of this passage. Mark, in an economy of words, often will say things in a way that is showing us something that is there below the surface, but in front of our eyes. Something that, with enough digging, careful consideration, meditation on this passage, I think could become plain to all of us. This passage doesn't sit alone either. Remember what's happened in Mark so far. Uh, Jesus has been repeatedly uh, trying to get his followers to manage the expectations of the crowds regarding his Messiahship. This is the third time he'll tell people not to tell anyone about what he's up to, trying to uh, bring the messianic fervor that's starting to spread down to a reasonable level. And we'll talk about why that is shortly. There's other things happening in this passage, and and some of it's geographical, and I want to show you that in these opening verses, and and some of it's biological, and and you know that's kind of that middle section. 
some of it's linguistic. There's several words in this passage that are nowhere else in the Bible, nowhere else in the New Testament. They, they call it in a fancy way, hapax legemina. It means it's a word only here and nowhere else. Uh, but that's, that's not, I think, what really grabs our attention. It's not the presence of the messianic secret because that's something that we see in other passages. It's not even the healing of a blind, or of a, blind, of a, of a deaf person and a mute person. Uh, we see that in other passages as well. And there is something about the shape of this passage tied into the healing in chapter 8 of the blind man that becomes a lesson that Jesus gives to his disciples. But I don't even want to really talk about that today either because we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 8. Jesus uses this particular healing and a future healing in the next chapter, uh, in two chapters, to show his disciples that they have something in common with people who are blind and deaf and mute in a spiritual sense. So there's a lot here. But the thing that captivated me this week was, and maybe, maybe I'm weird, I know I'm weird, but I wonder, if it's, I wonder if it's distracting to you as well. It's hard for me to get past the, the means that Jesus uses to heal this man. Why does he put his fingers in the man's ears? And even more unusual, at least to our world, would be, why does Jesus spit? And it's not clear exactly if the spit was direct or indirect. In other words, did he spit on the man, or did he spit on his hand, or did he spit? Well, we don't know. It's not very clear. In another passage, Jesus makes mud with his spit and heals a blind man's eyes in Mark chapter 8. So that's the the part of this story and, and part of studying the Bible that I think gets us wondering. And there's no way that every mystery in the scripture could be uncovered and solved. But it does leave us, you know, asking the question, why this way? And what was Jesus trying to demonstrate? Such, a, such an, an interesting passage with such strange details. And my greatest concern would be that you walk away from this passage mixed up about why Jesus did what he did, why he did it in this way. When I've become convinced through studying this passage and any other passage from the life of our Lord that the takeaway is always worship. And so my dilemma this morning is how do I get you from where you are to worship? How do I move your heart and mind in your understanding of a passage that is obviously unusual to a place where you see Christ more lovely than you did before? Because that's the experience I've had working through these mere paragraphs this week. Samuel Rutherford said this, O pity forevermore that there should be such an one as Christ Jesus, so boundless, so bottomless, so incomparable in infinite excellency and sweetness, and so few to take him. Oh, ye poor, dry, dead souls, why will you not come hither and with your empty vessels and your empty souls to this huge and fair and deep and sweet well of life and fill all your empty vessels? Oh, that Christ could be so large in sweetness and worth and we so narrow, pinched, ebbed, and so void of all happiness, and yet men will not take him. They lose their love miserably who will not bestow it upon this lovely one, Christ. That's the objective. I want you, through our study of this passage, to, along with the people who heard about this miracle, be able to say, truly Christ has done all things well, and that your heart would be compelled to worship him. Let's look at this passage in three parts. Verse 31 to 32 is the man's unfortunate condition. The man's unfortunate condition. The middle of this passage, verse 33 to 35, is the Messiah's unusual care, cure. The Messiah's unusual cure. 
And then that final verses, verse 36 and 37, we can call it the, the message's unstoppable proclamation. So that's where we're going. We're going to go the man's unfortunate condition. We'll move to the Messiah's unusual cure. And then the message's unstoppable proclamation. So we begin with the man's unfortunate condition. And before we, we see the man, we see the movement of Christ in verse 31. Jesus is leaving the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. This is familiar to us if we've been studying the Gospel of Mark together and not taking a 12-week break, but uh, we, we would remember, maybe with a little jostling, that we've seen at least the word Decapolis before and, and maybe even Tyre and Sidon. So to give you a, a contextual overview of where we are, we're in a place called Galilee. It's up north. It's where Jesus is from. You'll remember he's been moving around based on uh, harassment sometimes from the religious leaders, based on massive crowds that have overwhelmed him as disciples, uh, relentless in their pursuit of him for his teaching and healing. And just to exist, uh, to survive, Jesus has had to move around uh, across the lake uh, up north. And, And now, after having all these confrontations of, uh, the, with the Pharisees over what is clean and unclean, which is the theme of, of chapter 7, we see Jesus move in a somewhat unusual way if he's trying to get to this man, if providence is unfolding to move Jesus to an encounter with this man in the Decapolis. Something's happened that's unfolded his geographical whereabouts in an interesting way. In other words, in Mark chapter 5, you've been there before with Jesus. It's when he was in the Decapolis and he encountered the demoniac from uh, Gerasene, the madman cut and scraped and naked and living among the tombs. And Jesus heals that man. And then in a, in a moment that is unlike any other moment in the Gospels, he commissions this Gentile, you know, formerly demon-possessed guy, to be his emissary in these ten towns. That's what Decapolis means. and It was a Gentile region. And so this is a very Gentile story because Jesus just had an encounter in the prior paragraph with someone called the Syrophoenician woman. That's the area kind of north of Israel. This is a woman who would have been uh, definitely considered a Gentile, rejected by uh, the people. She was Greek-speaking. She was not an Israelite. This is not the normal people that Jews would hang around. And so this is a very national, a very international kind of passage, and it has a, a focus to help us think Gentile country, Gentile country, because Jesus goes from uh, Tyre, which is is here on the map, there's the the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee. Here's Tyre. And then he goes to Sidon, which is up here. Uh, and then he goes like a semicircle this way around to get to uh, the Decapolis region. Uh, it would have been way easier to just go around here. We don't know why he did this. Uh, the text doesn't tell us, but it's certainly a tour of Gentile regions. It's as if the the author is, is getting his Bible map out. You know, you probably have one in the back of your Bible. And it's as if he circled a particular area on the map. And why Jesus traveled that way on kind of a normal level, I don't know. He had his reasons. They're not given to us. But I think the circling of this area in your little Bible map to take a, a highlighter and to go... Tyre and Sidon and, and the region of the Decapolis would be to circle the, the Syrophoenician Empire, the, the Gentile area, an area that was considered uh, anathema by the Jews. And so Mark wants that to be underlined in our mind, where Jesus is. He makes a 120-mile journey to return to where he's already been And he's got an encounter with this man set before him. It's not something that the disciples understood as it unfolded, but it was something that was noteworthy after Jesus had died and been resurrected and and Mark pens his gospel and, and is working with Peter and saying, well, then where did you go and what did you do? And, And Peter just remembers this 
being such a, a trip, a very intentional return to an area of great discomfort for the Jews, but one where Jesus had someone to meet. And that's when we meet the man in verse 32, a man with an unfortunate condition. It's not easy to be lacking one or more of your senses. And Jesus encounters people who are, who are blind or who are missing a limb or who have a, a withered hand or some other incurable disease. But this is an example of a man who was apparently completely unable to hear. And often with that condition, uh, either at a young age or, or from birth, this man had very great difficulty speaking. And so his condition is described for us in verse 32. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could, the NIV says, could hardly talk. Older Bibles would say uh, deaf and dumb or deaf and mute. But that's not what the word is. And, and understanding both the geographical thing that I just talked about, which maybe you, you zoned out for that. I don't blame you. I get it. That, that kind of sets you up. But... To just think that this is merely a medical thing could cause you to miss really what's on display here about how lovely this, this Savior is. And Mark is such a genius in his crafting this story because he uses a word in verse 32. It says, there, there some people, apparently friends of this man, People who lived near him, family members, someone cared enough about him to bring him to Jesus. There some people brought him to a man who was deaf, just an ordinary word for deaf. But then this word, mogelos. And as soon as I looked at it in the Greek New Testament, I thought, I've never seen that word in my whole life. And that's because it's only here. It's nowhere else in the New Testament. It's an unusual word. It means, mogi means with difficulty. It's like a hard thing, a difficult thing. Lalos means talking. That's a really ordinary word. Mashed together, it just means he had great difficulty of speech. Maybe your Bible translates it speech impediment. So we all can, can picture what that means or what that looks like with a person who is who is deaf, they don't have the, the facility to hear. That's affected the development of their speech. And so that's this man's condition. A difficult way to live, especially in the ancient world. But it's Mark's use of this word that keys us in to this man's unfortunate condition. And the issue ultimately isn't this, this man can't hear. The issue ultimately isn't that this man uh, has difficulty speaking or great difficulty speaking. The issue honestly has more to do with where this man lives and the problem that all men have. We don't know for sure that this man's a Gentile. It's not clear in this passage, but we could assume that. It doesn't really make a difference if he's Jewish or not. But Jesus is ministering in a place of of outside of God's covenant people, outside of Israel, outside of the holy city, away from Mount Zion. He's, he's back where demon-possessed guy was. He's back where the pigs were on display. He's back where uh, the, this world of, of paganism, of false gods, this, this Roman empire, he, he's back there. And Mark uses this word. And I wonder if it was that word that Jesus used as he and his disciples were, were talking about this. Because though it doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament, it occurs one place in the Greek Bible. Just one. One other place. Which to me is, is a clue. Blues clues. Isaiah 35. The Greek Bible is called the Septuagint. In other words, it's the whole Bible in Greek, the Old Testament in Greek. The Hebrew Scriptures translated. 
And there's a lot of words in the Old Testament. If you're going to translate all those books, you'd have lots and lots of words. How interesting that Mark chooses Moegi Lalos for Mark chapter 7. He must have had Isaiah 35 in mind. Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then verse 6, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. Megi Lalos found it. I have no idea how people did this before they had Bible software. Like, all I can handle is Wordle. It's all I can handle. I need six tries, three this morning. But I'm just, I'm just amazed at Mark's aptitude and awareness, at the Spirit's inspiration to, to use him to grab onto this passage so that we would have a, a deeper understanding of the glory of Jesus. And so I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, so what? It's the same word. The same unique word. Well, if in this passage, blind people see and deaf people hear, verse 5, and paralyzed people leap like deer, and someone that could be described as mogilalos, a uh, uh, difficult speaking, uh, a speech impediment, someone who is muted in their, in their tongue will be able to shout for joy, then what we can imagine is going to happen in Mark chapter 7 is just that. That Isaiah was prophesying something and at least a portion of this prophecy is pointing towards this moment in Mark chapter 7. There's a fulfillment in sight here. And I think that that little lexical connection is enough for us to have a, a lot of grounds that whatever's happening in Isaiah 35 is whatever's being promised in Isaiah 35, whatever the prophet is preaching about 800 years prior in Isaiah 35 finds some sort of resonance and fulfillment and a glimpse of something even greater to come in Mark chapter 7 and in Jesus's interaction with this man who has an unfortunate condition because this man is likely Gentile. He is completely deaf he is mostly mute, and he is lost apart from a Messiah. That's the desperate condition he's in. That's the unfortunate condition. And according to the prophet Isaiah, that's exactly where Messiah would find the object of his mercy. If you're still in Isaiah 35, look up with me. Look up with me too. Verse 1, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come and he will save you. Isaiah is ministering to Judah He's preaching to the kingdom of Judah and he's trying to show them that it's not going to be bad forever. The wrath and judgment and vengeance of God that they're experiencing because of their sin, because of an uh, invasion of an Assyrian army, will someday come to a point where everything will be set right. 
And one of the questions that this passage answers is, where? Where will that happen? Well, did you see all those place names in verse 1 and 2? Arabah, Lebanon, Carmel, Sharon. That's a pretty wide swath. But if you take that middle word, Lebanon, and if I handed you a map and a highlighter, guess where you would circle? Well, that same area that Jesus just walked. Tyre, Sidon, the Decapolis, that's the Syrophoenician Empire. Jesus just walked in this kind of unusual semicircle to get from here to here. He went like this, and he drew a circle around the same place highlighted in Isaiah 35 to say that this happy future that Zion is guaranteed because of someone who will come on behalf of God, who will save, who will open blind eyes, who will unstop deaf ears, who will cause the lame and the paralyzed to walk and leap and tongues that are stifled to be loosened, to shout in worshipful joy. This kind of transformation that obviously has lots of poetic beauty to it, but goes beyond just the mechanical healing in Mark chapter 7, certainly begins with the mechanical healing in Mark chapter 7, and then somehow will break into verse 6, uh, verse 7 in Isaiah 35, the scorched land will become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water, in the haunt of jackals its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes, a highway will be there, a roadway, it will be called the highway of holiness, the unclean will not travel on it. It will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. The redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing will flee away. You ask any rabbi, show me a passage that announces the glory of the Messiah. And they would choose Isaiah 35 among the finest. And it was always that way. They saw in this chapter a depiction of what it would be like when God would come down, when he would set everything right. And that's what's happening in Mark chapter seven. It's the beginning of this incredible moment, this messianic epoch where Jesus comes in his incarnate nature, first as a baby in the manger and then walking among not just the the people he came to deliver and save in Israel, but a, a wider view of where his salvation will spread, even to places like Lebanon and places like Tyre and Sidon and places like the Decapolis. And so in this little passage, in this highlighting of a Bible map, we see not only the beginnings of the the fulfillment of an 800-year-old prophecy. We see the very heart of God in pouring out his mercy on a broken world, a world that has a deeply unfortunate condition, a world that is lost and hurting, and a world that needs to be restored, like a wilderness that could be transformed into a paradise. That's the condition of humankind. And here Jesus walks into this scene and one man is brought by his friends and all he can do is see Jesus. He can't hear Jesus' voice. He can't clearly communicate what his needs are to Jesus, except for with great difficulty. And so his friends speak on his behalf. And I don't know that they realize it, probably not yet at this moment in the story. They've just heard that Jesus can 
help people, heal people, that he has the power of God in him and associated with him. And so the friends just parakaleo, they plead, they beg out to him, they they beg him, plead him, they insist with Jesus, and they ask, could you just put your hand on him? It's what we saw in the earlier passage with the woman who said, if I could just put my hand on his garment, if I could just touch the edge of his clothes. And so the friends say, will you put your hand on our friend? They knew he needed new ears. They knew he needed a loosened tongue. What they didn't realize is that Jesus would bring to this man so much more and he would bring to this world so much more. A healing that would prefigure a renewal where crocuses, those are fancy flowers that need a lot of water, and reeds would grow in the wilderness. A transformed place that was cursed by God and now will be restored by God through Messiah. And that's what we're getting a glimpse of here. But there's another distraction in the middle of this passage. I think that because of our culture and modernistic worldview or postmodern worldview and scientific inclinations prevents us from seeing the loveliness of Jesus. I think you see it in the man's unfortunate condition as Jesus ushers in the messianic era. But in this middle section, the Messiah's unusual cure, we got to talk about something, and it's called spit. Verse 33. After he took him aside away from the crowd. And here I want you to just move slowly with me through this passage because I am I'm overwhelmed by the beauty of it. Verse 33 He took him aside. Lombano, it's, it's to receive um, him to himself, middle voice. He took him aside. Like Jesus gets this guy, and the crowds are always on Jesus. The, the critics are always on Jesus. The rubberneckers are just looking at whatever he's doing, constantly peering, and, and Jesus has no desire for this man to be a sideshow. A man who's been stared at his whole life when he opens his mouth and, and his speech is slurred or, or, or difficult to discern and, and he tries hard to put his words together and, and people would laugh at him when he was a, a little kid, I'm sure, and make fun of him because kids are cruel and mean. And then society would pity him but definitely keep a distance from him. In fact, the religious people of the day were the most likely to judge him because their thinking was, well, this guy must have sinned or his parents must have sinned. And so Jesus wants him away from all of that. And it says he received him to himself. He took him aside and then further away from the crowd. Jesus needs a moment with this man. His intentions to heal this man. And he wants to do this privately. And so he pulls him aside. And I love the tenderness of that. I love the compassion of that. And then the first thing Jesus does, not that difficult. Owen, come up here. Put all that stuff down. Come up here. Someone on YouTube did this and they got in a lot of trouble. I'm not going to do that. So this is my son, Owen. Jesus brings the man aside. Good wave. And he puts his fingers in his ears. And that's not weird for me. I, that, we've been through a lot together. <laughs> so why did Jesus do that? Commentators do weird stuff and they say it was to like let a demon out. I mean, all these hypotheses. Here's the thing. The man couldn't hear. This is just simple and beautiful sign language. Jesus is simply indicating to someone who doesn't have the capacity to hear that he is going to minister to his ears. That's all that is. Thank you, Owen. You did a great job. Owen, everybody. And so it doesn't make any sense for Jesus to say, I'm going to heal your ears, obviously. 
But he puts his fingers, I'm sure tenderly, into the man's ears to signify what he's about to do. Now likewise, he wants the man to understand that he's not only going to restore his hearing, but Jesus wants the man to know that he's going to restore his speech. And how much frustration this man encountered in his life as he would try to communicate, unable to control the volume of his communication, uh, struggling greatly with clarity, because if you cannot hear, it's very difficult to speak. And so Jesus spits, directly or indirectly, we don't know. And he touches the man's tongue. He grabs a hold of his tongue. It's a word for touch or grasp. It's the same word the, the, the passage is used where the woman uh, grabs a hold of the edge of his garment. So Jesus has his hands and maybe also his spit on this man's tongue. Again, multiple spit miracles. And I've never heard anybody really talk about this. And so I, I've prepared a sub-sermon called the history of saliva in the Bible. Because it's, I just, I'm, I got questions, don't you? I mean, I read the passage, you know, I've obviously seen the passage before. I'm reading it to, to study it, and I, I read it. I find the weird words. And I just think afresh in this modern age, I think, first thought, not COVID safe. <laughs> first thing I thought of. And that showed me something. That showed me that where I'm at culturally is so far from this passage that the chance of me understanding it is very slim unless I bridge that gap. And somebody helped me bridge the gap. His name, Frank Gonzalez Cruci. He's the author of a book. He's not a Christian. He's a historian. Uh, MIT published this book. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big timer. It's called The Body Fantastic. It's a book that looks at the human body through the lens of dreams and myths and legends and anecdotes of the bizarre, exploring the close connection of the fictitious and the fabulous to our conception of the body. My kind of book. In it, he talks about bodily fluids. And it's just different than we think about them now. I'll give you a little excerpt. Considering the magnitude of men's hubris, it comes as no surprise that some pretended to emulate the divine miracle, talking about Jesus' miracle. The Roman emperor Vespasian, who reigned from 69 AD to 79 AD, which, by the way, is around the time of Mark's writing, while touring in Alexandria, spat upon the eyes of a blind man who implored him to do so, allegedly at the prompting he had received in a dream from the Greco-Egyptian god Serapis. Chroniclers tell us that a lame man also came and begged for a cure, asking the emperor to touch with his foot the withered limb. At first, Vespian shrank from doing either in front of a large cloud, but his doctors advised him to go ahead. This he did, and it was believed the chroniclers both petitioned to be cured. However, Tacitus, the great Roman historian, remarks that the doctors had previously determined that the blindness of the one was partial, the lameness of the other only a dislocation. The physicians figured that the emperor had nothing to lose. If the attempt was successful, Vespasian's prestige would be raised to the skies. If unsuccessful, the sick wretches would be covered with ridicule for asking what was manifestly absurd. Clearly, the universal motto of politicians was then as now, accept all the credit and none of the blame. He's funny. Pliny the Elder praises the therapeutic powers of human saliva in his natural history. Not only is it the best of all safeguards against serpents, he says, but daily experience teaches that many other advantages attend its use. Surely the ancient Romans were sensitive to such notions. They spat upon the victim of an epileptic fit. They spat to ward off bad luck that follows meeting a person lame in the right leg. If deemed guilty of too presumptuous hope, they asked forgiveness of the gods by spitting on their own bosom. They spat into the right shoe before putting it down for good luck, putting it on in 
And of course, they treated ophthalmia by uh, applying a saliva-based ointment every morning. Pains in the neck were treated by applying fasting saliva. Interesting to be useful. The saliva had to be obtained during fasting with the right hand to the right knee and the left hand to the left knee. So powerful was the force attributed to saliva, wrote Pliny, that the Romans believed that spitting three times before taking any medicament sufficed to enhance its curative power. It's a lot, right? Let me continue. The healing powers of oral secretion kept their good renown throughout history. Albert the Great, Latinized name Albertus Magnus, regarded by some as the greatest theologian and philosopher of the Middle Ages, extolled the medicinal properties of human saliva, especially that obtained during prolonged fasting, which included abstention from liquids. Its beneficial nature, said the Doctor Universalis, is reflected in its ability to kill asps and other venomous creatures. It suffices that we spit upon them or touch them with the tip of a rod that's been wetted with the liquid from our mouth for all the nefarious vermin immediately to die. This idea did not originate with Albert. It carries echoes of Pliny and his predecessors. However, the medieval sage adds that further proof of the wondrous salivary virtues lies in the observation that wet nurses use their own saliva to cure the newborn of all sorts of uh, inflammations, fernicles, impedio, by rubbing the lesions with their spittle. He quotes the reports of Arab physicians who affirm that once mixed with mercury, its therapeutic powers are so greatly enhanced that a victim of the plague may be saved by simply inhaling the mixture's emanations. I mean, he goes on and on here. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like, oh, the Dark Ages, gross. It was, you know, they, they thought such weird stuff. And just so you know, you're thinking that, and you bought oils from that guy's mom. Just, just gonna say that really fast. So, I make fun of oil selling at least once a month. It's, it's a good time for me. The point of all of this, let me, let me go a little bit more, because I know this is never going to happen again. The central thesis of, of a treatise he's talking about is, uh, let, me, let me summarize. So, he goes on to talk about today's medical scientists. They don't have the same enthusiasm about spit some of the doctors from the Greco-Roman world do, right? We all know that. At the same time, the observation that all animals instinctively lick their wounds, that wounds in the oral mucosa, for instance, after a tooth extraction, heal much faster than those of skin or other sites, lead research to suspect the presence of a healing principle in saliva. Indeed, a number of beneficial substances were already known to exist there, such as antibacterial and antifungal compounds and factors that promote blood clotting, but those that speed up the healing of wounds remained elusive for a long time. It is of no small interest that researchers have of late identified some, such as epidermal growth factor, You see, I just put this part in for you. Uh, Although lacking the fervor of Albert the Great or the hyperbolic enthusiasm of the 19th century advocate of the uh, fasting spittle, present-day investigators have been sufficiently impressed by the bacterial effects of saliva to wonder whether being licked by pet dogs might be, after all, a clean and salutary practice. Not so they concluded after due investigation. The bacterial flora in the saliva of animals is radically different from that of humans. Therefore, beware amorous effusions from man's best friend may pass on to you exotic infections worse than any you could get from a similarly demonstrative fellow human being. If you understood that, that was gross and funny. (laughs) So what am I doing up here with all this spit talk? I need us to recognize our incredible hubris and cultural baggage we bring to spit. Do you understand when your grandparents walked around this world, great-grandparents. Almost everywhere, in every public building, you could find spittoons. Not only because they chawed tobacco. The Supreme Court justices, every one of them, next to their bench, has a spittoon. Do you know why that is? It's not because they chewed tobacco. It's because... A hundred years ago, people used to spit all the time. It was a thing. People were big spitters. They thought it was healthy to spit. They they had to have a whole public health campaign in the 20th century teaching kids, stop spitting so much. 
The only ones that never learn not to, baseball players. Facts. <laughs> I'm telling you, the way we think about spit is a, totally a result of history and culture. And now to spit in someone's face is the most offensive thing we could think of, right? Disrespectful and offensive. But you have to understand this world is very different from our world. Our perceptions, our medical hypotheses, all of these things are so modern and Western and different than the world of the Bible. And so all this spit talk has a very different milieu than the spit we're dealing with today. Long walk, short drink of spit. So here's the thing. What was Jesus doing? At least six things. One, mysterious. My first answer, I don't know why he did it this way. It's mysterious. Ryle calls it a peculiar manner. There's mystery to it. And lots of Bible teachers have taken lots of random lessons from Jesus using spit in his healing. And so first off, it's, it's mysterious. Second, like the ear plugging, it's sign language. Jesus is showing this man who cannot hear that he is going to loosen his tongue. That his tongue will be like Jesus' mouth. His mouth will be restored in fullness. Third, there's intimacy here. I mean, this is not merely a strange rabbinical figure meeting a man. This is an intimate moment between creator and creation. And I don't know how many times I've seen a mom pull one of these on their kid. And, you know, no kids really like it that much. But it's just so automatic. There's something intimate about it. Something, I don't know the word. (laughs) Icky. (laughs) And so there's intimacy here as Jesus is ministering one-on-one to this guy. Fourth, there's something incarnational about it. We worship a God who spits. I mean it. If you've ever wondered about the the real humanity of Christ, he spit, he bled, he wept. He was a real person. Fifth, There's something image restoring about this. There's something where God and man are are interacting in this moment. Where Jesus is saying, what's mine is yours. That I'm bringing you into my existence and my life and my reality. He's sharing with this man. Six. There's something exalting about this. And I think Mark put all the details in because he was writing at a time when that emperor, Vespasian, was copycatting Jesus. And I think he obviously Vespasian did not have spitting powers. But the Roman propaganda machine wanted the people to think that he did. Wanted to think that the emperors were gods. It was one of the biggest problems that the early Christians faced. Their refusal to worship the panoply of Roman gods. Their refusal to worship the emperor. And I think when when Mark wrote this, and Roman... Emperor worship is at its all-time high. It's just one little way of exalting Christ and reminding Christians 
that Jesus always outspits the emperor. That's my reason, my favorite reason. Just leave it there. Again, you can just take one of those reasons. You can take mystery if you want. But I love this scene. And studying it has changed my perspective on it to go from, ooh, gross and weird, to imagine all the glory there. I can't solve it. I don't know exactly why. But I do know that Christ is beautiful. He's intimate. He's incarnate. He's powerful. And he's restoring the image of God in this man, in a broken man who is having an encounter with his creator. I also know that that's not the biggest part of this passage. I know I spent a lot of time on it, but that's just because I'm kind of weird that way. Verse 34, Jesus, after touching his tongue and putting his fingers in his ears, looks up to heaven, looks up to heaven, and with a deep sigh. Here is where the power comes from. Jesus isn't conjuring like cultural magic by spitting and doing this stuff. This isn't an incantation. This isn't Jesus merely employing, you know, hypotheses about the healing power of spit in his world that day. I don't think that's what what is happening there. I think what's happening is Jesus is setting this guy up for the miracle, which comes after he communicates to this guy with his hands, with his spit, with his tongue, where he encounters this guy in an intimate way, where he connects this guy to his creator, and then Jesus gives all the glory to heaven, and he looks up to his Father, the source of all life, all healing, all power, and he sighs. And the sigh of Jesus is honestly as compelling as anything that Jesus does. Whether it's spitting or plugging ears or sighing or preaching or dying, everything that Christ does is lovely. And here he sighs, a deep sigh. He sighs again in chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus' sighs seem to always have the same kind of motivation. Chapter 8, verse 12, he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. He sighs again in verse 17, or maybe this is the same kind of sound in verse 17. What are you talking about having bread? Do you still not understand? No sigh there, but it's the same kind of frustration with their lack of understanding. In chapter 9, verse 19, he says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. When Jesus encountered Lazarus in, in, in his death in, in John chapter 11, it's a groan that comes from Jesus. And they said, Behold how he loved him. I think when Jesus sighs, it's because he's not frustrated that this man is the victim of, of, of deafness, that he's mute, because he's going to remedy that in a second. He sighs because this man represents this whole world and its brokenness. This man represents the, the blindness of the disciples, the deafness of the disciples, the, the inability of the disciples to speak. All of it is wrapped up in this one man. The fall, the curse, the the sin-plagued planet, the the presence of disease and death is all right here in this moment. And Jesus looks to heaven because heaven has yet to be restored on earth and he sighs looking to his father knowing that that restoration has begun but it's a long way to go all the way to the cross and the resurrection and the age to come. And so he looks up to heaven and he says in Aramaic which is like a motherly house language, It's what they spoke in their homes. Hebrew they spoke at church. Aramaic they spoke in home and intimate settings. Uh, Greek was like the language of commerce. 
And he chooses Aramaic so often in his healings. He did it when he said, Talitha kumi, little girl, wake up. And he does it here with this man. And I think this is the first word this man would hear, clearly with his ears, Ephatha. And Mark translates it because the Gentiles wouldn't know this language. The Gentiles that are highlighted on the map, Jesus just says, be opened. Verse 35, immediately the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly, just like Isaiah 35 said. He shouts for joy. Well, what's left in a passage like this? It's that thing that we keep seeing in Mark, the, the secret, the secretive nature of Messiah. And so these last two verses, the heading is the message's unstoppable proclamation. And Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone, the disciples, the immediate witnesses, because this is a private scene, it's not the crowd. But it doesn't work. Because the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. It's funny that the Bible translates that, talking about it. That's not the word for talking. Talking is what that man couldn't do clearly. The word here is caruso. That means preaching. That's Steve Lawson's favorite word. Caruso. He loves that word. That's the preaching word. When Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, that's the word he uses. It's a word that means proclaim, to open, to publicize, to announce, talking. That word means preaching. Jesus told them, don't tell anyone. And they didn't just go around going, hey, did you hear what happened with the spit and uh, the brief history of spit in the ancient world? And I want to talk to you about something cool that I saw. No, they couldn't contain themselves. They just talked about it and proclaimed it and shouted about it and said, did you see what Jesus did? Uh, they couldn't contain this, this news and even to the point of disobeying Jesus' command. Interestingly, he told the demoniac, go tell the ten cities. So apparently that testimony has caused this Gentile region to be so excited about Jesus' work and ministry that now he needs to put a lid on it to some degree so that they don't take him by force and make him king of the Gentiles. And so he tells them, hush about this, and they go and they shout about it to the, from the rooftops. And their message is summarized in verse 37 with another word that's nowhere else in the New Testament. People were overwhelmed with amazement. It means astonished beyond measure, utterly shocked, so full of awe. They could not comprehend everything that Jesus had done and especially everything that Jesus is. And what did they say? He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I hope that you would say that too. That you would look at any moment in Jesus' life and ministry, unusual, familiar, difficult to understand, wherever it is you find yourself in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, and your takeaway would be, he does all things well. And then I hope you'll look at your life and your testimony, the work of Jesus in the past and in, in your personal life, the way he's forgiven you of your sin and, and set you 
on the course that you're on in your life and shown you himself and and made you a part of the church and you look back over your life and the the hard things you've been through that he's brought you through and and the people that that you you've lost because of your faith the the relationships that have been broken the the new ones that have been restored uh, being a part of the family of God all the times the lord has forgiven you all the times the lord has been kind to you every morning when you you remind yourself that his mercies are new each morning every time you remember his, his loving kindness is better than your life, that his love endures for every. Every time that, that you read one of his promises and you, you hold it in your heart, every time you remember that Jesus is preparing a place for you, that he's interceding you at the Father's right hand, every time you remember the promise that he'll never leave you or forsake you and that nothing, nothing, not life or the devil or hell itself can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Every time you remember that no one can snatch you out of his hand. Every time you remember that he promised that he will return for you and that he left his spirit with us. Every time that you utter the prayer, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Every time you see his work in this world and lost people being saved. Every time you share the gospel with the hope that it will change someone's life the way it changed yours. Every time you see the work or hear the words of Jesus, I hope that you too will say, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Father, thank you for your son in all his manifold loveliness. And I ask God that If there are any here who cannot behold the beauty of Christ, that they don't see him in all his saving power and glory, that you'd open blind eyes, unstop their ears, loosen their tongues so that they can experience the grace of Jesus because of the forgiveness he purchased on the cross that they can be part of this restoration where everything is being made new. And God, for believers here, for the Christians here, would you increase our capacities to behold the beauty and glory of Jesus as we encounter him in this word that you've given us and as we encounter him working in this world, restoring all things to himself by the power of the gospel with the hope of the age to come. In Jesus' name, amen.